What's up, everybody? This is Tyler Baker from Goodbye June, and you are listening to The Hook Rocks with my man, Jay Scott. Turn it up. Good evening, everybody. It is Jay Scott, and we are back here on The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope you had a great holiday, great Christmas, great Hanukkah, great Kwanzaa, whatever it is that you celebrate. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Hope you enjoyed your time. If you spent time with family, hope it was safe, and I hope it was enjoyable. Uh, the holidays were kind of meh for me. Uh, I'm, a few of you did know, but... I did have a little bit of a health issue here over the last couple of weeks, so that is taken care of, and I'm and I'm on the road to recovery. Thank you for all the kind messages and everyone that reached out. I do appreciate it, and thank you very much. But you know, each day I'm getting stronger and looking forward to recovering 100. percent Probably got about another four weeks to go in terms of recovering, but you know. What better time to recover than when you're in a pandemic in the middle of winter? So there's really not much going on. So just kind of take advantage of the rest or the time to rest and see where that leads me and continue to put out shows. I got my leg up and just uh, ready to record here with a repeat guest, a repeat offender. It's been about, I don't know, six months since he's been on, but it's Rob in the hood. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing well, Jay. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're sort of on the road to recovery and, and that you're you're doing much better than you were. And uh, I'm eager to talk about music because everything else in the world kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it has been somewhat of an escape this year, whether it's my podcast or other podcasts. You know, there's a lot of great people out there discussing rock music, and there's a lot of great new music to talk about as well. As we talked before we came on here, I came on the air so yeah, it's been a it's been a weird year. Um, I don't think we're going to be back to normal anytime soon. Unfortunately, I just don't think once the clock strikes midnight on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, I just think it will be the same thing here until at least. I don't see an improvement until at least the middle of spring. I mean, even though we got the vaccine and people are becoming a little bit more open to taking it. I still think there's going to be some hesitation. I still think it's going to be a little bit before we get back to normal. And it's going to be a little bit before people feel normal. You know, it's not just going to be, got the vaccine, let's go out and party. I think there's still going to be a lot of hesitation and a lot of changes to the way we live our lives. That's just my opinion. I hope I'm wrong, though. Well, I, I think that we've all been through a kind of a year-long trauma, and I don't think there's anybody that's escaped its effects and as with any trauma it takes a while for your psyche to get used to the fact that the trauma is not there anymore so I, I unfortunately i think you're, you're right that it'll be a slow road to, to recovery i forget who i was talking to but it was, it was on the show 
and we were talking about going back to live concerts. And I think it was Mike from Hermosa Beach, Mike, uh, his guitar shop, the luthier that we had on who builds custom guitars. He's like, just right. wait till you're at a concert and someone starts coughing behind you. Yeah. You know, um, that's going to be interesting to see how people react and how people, you know, are, are still cautious and people get angry. Who knows what's going to happen, but we shall see. And I, th- I think you're right. You know, the psyche of people, you know, we've been doing this now for almost a year. We've kind of settled into some habits We've settled into acceptance. Uh, at least a lot of us have. There are still people that you know won't accept a reality that that's out there. But um, it's going to be different. I was just having a conversation with a family member about movie theaters. I don't know if movie theaters will come back in the way that we know. Yeah, that's that's true. You know, and so I was thinking about the last concert I went to, which was I saw um, Dirty Honey with the Amazons um, here in Southern California. They were at uh, the House of Blues in, in uh, Anaheim. And I think Christian Eagle was actually at that same show. She was. Um, and if I, didn't know, if I didn't know that was going to be the last concert I was going to be able to go to for who knows how long, um, I, I don't know. I probably would have like bought every item of merch that was there. I did buy their, their vinyl, but uh, I probably would have bought more. <laughs> My last show was November 2019. I've said it before here on the show. It was the big. It was big wreck at the Bottom Lounge in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And that was the last show I was at. The last performance I saw live was earlier in March. I saw Dave Chappelle up in Milwaukee. But yeah, I mean, there were so many bands I wanted to see this year, which is why we are going to be doing the show that we're doing today. You came up with this great idea. You direct messaged me, and. We're going to discuss our favorite live albums, our top five. And I think it's a great topic considering a lot of us have not been to a concert in a long time. A lot of rock and roll fans love going to see live music. A lot of my followers love going to see live music. So what better time to discuss our favorite live albums? I think it's a great topic. I think it's going to be something that may... You know, if something comes out of this in terms of, a, you know, a kind of like a old school type of thing or, you know, kind of bands revisiting the, the art of a live album to give yeah. to their fans, I think that's probably going to become more and more as shows become different. But I think it's a great topic. It's an interesting topic and one that we've never done on here. So thanks for coming up with this great idea. Well, sure. I, I, I've been kind of obsessed, as I think I mentioned to you before we started uh, talking here, was the, the, the live album, um, to me, has really kind of, um, even now that we have less live music available, it's become something of an obsession where I've, I've been listening to um, live albums in their entirety every Sunday. It's kind of my method of, of, of a religious experience, I suppose. Because I think that rock and roll really speaks to the live album much better than other genres do. I mean, I'm I'm not really big on most pop, but you don't see the same level of improvisation and that kind of music that you do in rock and roll. Now, no, sorry, there is some with country and definitely with jazz, where there's something of the unpredictability that makes it exciting. You hear something new and different um, because sometimes the artist doesn't know exactly what they're going to do, and you feel the energy flowing out of the recording 
that isn't there in the studio. Yeah, no, it definitely helps someone revisit, especially if they saw the tour that the live album right. is is uh, being recorded at. So it's kind of like, you know, oh, I was at this tour. I was at, you know, this is great. You know, it kind of like documents your own personal history of seeing a live show. And then for those that maybe didn't go to that tour or didn't, haven't seen a particular band live, it's a great way to get somewhat of an experience of how they are, how they play live. And that's Absolutely. really, the, yeah, that's really the, the essence of a live album, the art of a live album. It's able to capture that moment. And some bands, as we know, sound better live in terms of the energy. You know, sometimes yep. when the band's in the studio, it doesn't capture that raw energy that they have live. I mean, when, when yeah. you know, when I think of that statement, I think of the band Kiss. You know, you listen to those first three studio albums in the early 70s, and then you hear a live. Right. Totally changed the game for them. Totally, you know, brought in, basically broke them. A live album broke them. And that really did happen a lot in the 70s. I think the live album kind of went away in the 80s. There wasn't as many as there were in the 70s. But it really is, you know, a completely different type of vibe than a studio album, obviously. But it can really help someone feel what the band is about. Yeah, I, I kind of lament the fact that I feel like that the, the live album has kind of gone by the wayside. I, I, I've wondered about that. I mean, some of it has to do with the type of music that's popular. It doesn't really translate to live experience when you have people that are obviously lip syncing. But it also, I think, I don't, I don't know, but I think it also might have to do with the expense and effort that's necessary in order to put out a good quality live album because um, I know just from playing around with my little hobby band that trying to capture your sound when you're playing live is no small feat, especially when you're trying. <laughs> the drums are are very difficult to get them to come through properly. And while most people can sit at home or in a home uh, makeshift studio and, and record stuff digitally much easier now than they used to be able to and, and put in overdubs and so forth, I think that the ability... Um, the technology doesn't make it as easy to capture a live experience, pandemic notwithstanding. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think it was Peter Chris I saw in an interview that stated everything comes from the drums in a live album. If the drums yeah, are messed yeah. up, they can't really fix it. So the drums yeah. really are the are the base of everything that's happening. You know, I mean, like you can go in the studios. We've learned through the years that bands go in a studio to re-record their guitars. They, you know, add in crowd noise and, 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 you know, the volume of the crowd. So there's a lot of things bands do with a live album, but if the drums are not recorded right, they can't do it. It's just not going to work. Right. Exactly. I've heard recordings where you, you know, that, if you were there listening to the, the performance, you wouldn't notice a problem, but in, in listening to a recording, it's almost like the drums don't exist and it really takes everything out of the energy of the song. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get to it. So we're going to do our top five favorite live albums. We'll also maybe add in some other favorites of ours that maybe didn't make our top five list. Um, also, too, if you're listening and you want to comment on our posts, that uh, kind of 
showcase this episode, please feel free to do that. Um, you know, tell us your top five live albums. Again, this is not a declaration on the best live albums. <laughs> I want to make that clear. It's our personal favorites, like the ones we like to listen to the most. It doesn't mean the ones we did not select are bad and we, we think, you know, poorly of them. These are our favorites, our personal favorites. You can have your personal favorites too, and you can make your list and you can comment on that. But please, I go through this all the time whenever people make lists or when I make my list, they always say, what about this song? And what about that? Yeah, I can't yeah. believe it. <laughs> you can have your list. We can have ours. So with that being said, Rob, why don't you go ahead with your number five? Sure. And, and actually, this was, this was much, much harder than I initially thought it was going to be just because there are so many really good live albums out there. And I hemmed and I hawed and I went back and forth and I took some off the list and put them back on the list. And, and so I was thinking about what kind of things am I looking for uh, for albums to make this list. And, and I think because there are different kinds of live albums, obviously you have the, the single performance versus the all over the place. But I'm looking for sound so that the, the album sounds good, that the energy is there, but there's something about the performance that you wouldn't get from the studio. There's either something unexpected or impromptu that really worked. There's something of that human error that is also genius that occurred during the recording. And I came up with, um, actually the, the one that I have is number five on my list is, is the newest album on my list. Mostly they're actually fairly old, but I have King's X live all over the place from 2004 as my number five album. Um, the, the they're one of my favorite bands. Um, they are a, they put out an incredible uh, sound for three guys and the vocals of Doug Pinnock and Ty Tabor are uh, milled very well. Ty Tabor's guitar playing is fantastic. I have caught King's X live and I, I never thought that someone could produce such a monster sound from just one guitar live um, with a fairly, what looks like a fairly simple rig and he does. And the live all over the place album really captures what I'm looking for in a live album. The, um, the standout track on that album for me is the song Over My Head, which is a, a pretty big song for them anyways. But Ty Tabor kind of ventures off into uh, other areas with the guitar solos. It just makes the song genius to me. Yeah, I've, not, I've never heard that, so I need to check that out. I mean, I love King's X. I love Doug Pinnock. Um, but that's going to be on my list now of things to listen to. Yeah, it is It is a... A good set of, of recordings. Also got a couple of, uh, there's like an acoustic part at the very end of the, of the album too. And as with every album, I looked on here, every album that I have listed is a double album, which I think is important to have with a live album. Because there are some really good live albums that just don't have enough material, so there's only a single album. Yeah, that's interesting. It's Because my number five is a double album as well. I think all my choices are yeah. double albums. Um, at least double albums. I know there's one that's well, depending on what version you get. But my number five is Pete Yorn's Live in New Jersey. Um, as much as I am a hard rock and heavy metal guy, uh, Pete Yorn is a great singer-songwriter, one of my favorites that I continue to listen to since I was in my early 20s. Pete Yorn, I, I bought his CD based on a review and I based on a preview disc that they had at Tower Records when I was probably like 24 or 25 and I was going on a road trip I'm like oh, I'll check it out you know I actually bought a Black Crows album at the same time that was the main reason why I went to Tower Records 
So I ended up buying this other CD, not really familiar with the guy's music, put it on and became an instant fan and listened to it the whole road trip back and forth up to Michigan. It was uh, kind of a coming-of-age album for me. Lyrics really connected with me. So after his second album, Day I Forgot, he released Live in New Jersey. And it's kind of a homecoming for him because he was born in New Jersey, then he kind of migrated out to L.A. But it really does show the energy of Pete and his shows uh, different than the album. The album does have good energy on it, but you really get the raw sound that is just phenomenal in his live shows, and I've seen him live several times. But if you have a chance out there, it's not you know hard rock. It's it's not heavy metal. It's singer songwriter. It's kind of like you know, like Tom Petty. I would probably compare it to if kind uh, of Americana. Yeah, kind of Americana. Yeah, absolutely. So. You know, check it out. Live in New Jersey is a great live album. Check out his catalog, his debut album, Music for the Morning After, is regarded by me as one of my favorite albums of all time. Great, great I, dude. I remember, you, I remember you mentioning him when you and I talked uh, earlier in the year. And I actually I bought uh, Music for the Morning After after we we talked because um, a lot of what I I listen to is is uh, rock and metal, but I, I do like the um, the focus on kind of storytelling and melody that a lot of uh, artists kind of in that same um, area tend to focus on. And I think it's great when a live performance of, of one of those um, types of artists uh, really connects and, and you feel the energy flowing through the audience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a, it was kind of a surprise. It was kind of like a, a release after his first two albums. And I picked it up cause I was a fan and I was you know just blown away from it. It's a great, great recording Great sound. That's also really important too, as we kind of touched on. Sonically, it it really works, and that's you know a live album. The mix is so important, and because yes. you don't want the crowd to be too low, you want to feel that energy. And you know, in order for it to be a great live album, the energy really needs to come from the audience. And I got some. I'm a huge Led Zeppelin bootleg collector. And there's some really yeah. good Zeppelin recordings that I have from soundboards, but a lot of times soundboard recordings lose that energy from the crowd. And, right. you know, you get the energy from the band and the band sounds great, but, you know, there's something about having that crowd noise and, you know, hearing the peaks of the crowd cheering during a song and singing along with the lyrics you know, sometimes a soundboard quality bootleg misses that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There's, I want to remember to come back to, to your thoughts on that because uh, what I've actually got is my number one album. I heard an interesting story that kind of relates to what you're saying. Um, and I, I don't want to forget about it when we get to it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. So uh, moving on to number four, what do you got? Sure. Uh, number four is an album from 1979 that I have seen uh, cited by many guitarists as, as one of their favorite live albums and it's UFOs, Strangers in the Night. Um, and it was, it was originally released as a, um, a double album. It was recorded in 1978 and it was recorded both in your neck of the woods at the International Amphitheater in Chicago and at the Louisville Gardens in Louisville, Kentucky. And it was right at the tail end of Michael Shanker's, uh, spent with the band. And I think that the uh, his his performance, his guitar playing, 
on that album. It's otherworldly. Um, and for me, the, the track that really seems to um, highlight that more than any other is the song Love to Love. I absolutely love hearing that guitar solo that, at the end of that song. It like, gives me chills just thinking about it. Yeah, it is a great recording, Strangers of the Night. I've had this album for decades, um, but I was always kind of late to the game with UFO. Uh, not that I didn't like them, but you know, when I was growing up in the '80s, you know, they weren't really big by that time. And yeah, I didn't hear them on the radio either. Yeah, you really didn't. And, you know, they they went through you know a couple of different guitar players, and they had some changes in the band. And, you know, they, they continued on, I think, now with Vinnie Moore. But, you know, it was something that I had to, like, kind of go back and revisit after, you know, my teen years and my 20s. And, you know, every, it seems like every few years I get more and more, um, I gain more and more appreciation for UFO that maybe I didn't have growing up. And I think it was just kind of, you know, my generation and kind of coming in and, you know, they already had their peak in the late 70s. And by the time I got into rock and roll, they were already, you know, kind of done in terms of, you know, being relevant. So, but right. yeah, Strangers of the Night is a kick-ass live album. And, you know, they re- they released a eight-disc um, version of this this year where they included all of the performances that were from right around that time frame. Um, that's that's a lot of volume of music to put out at once. So I'm kind of curious about to see what's there that wasn't on the original release. Definitely, yeah, I, I need to check that out too. I always like collector editions, especially when it extends the album. I'm not really a big fan of like demos and stuff like that. I mean, I'll probably yeah, give it, you yeah. know, you know, whenever I see a, a you know collector edition or a special edition that has demos, I'll maybe listen to it once. But usually I don't yeah. go back to it. I don't, I don't go back to that second disc. But if there's like an extended version where it has songs that were cut from the set, that's cool. That's something that I would right. definitely be interested in. Right. And my, my next pick actually kind of has something in that same vein. But uh, what do you have for number four? My number four is Kiss Alive. You know, kind of the right. quintessential 70s live album, the one that got a lot of musicians into music. You know, playing an instrument. I mean, uh, you you talk about the Beatles and you talk about the Stones and Zeppelin and, of course, Elvis. People mention a lot. But, you know, people that played music or were new new bands that were in the 80s really cite Kiss, especially Ace Frehley, as being so influential to their musical journey. And I know Kiss gets a lot of grief. I see it on Twitter all the time. And... You know, and and there's some good reason for that. I think you know. I mean, there's. I don't think it's all unjustified. But when you talk about influence in rock and roll, Kiss is right up there with you know some of the greats. And this album in itself was really what catapulted them into superstardom. You know, we talk about right. the three first studio albums. We talk, you know, Hotter Than Hell doesn't have the greatest production and it's disappointing because there's really some good songs but it's but all three of those albums really kind of sound very thin and yeah, if there's, there's an, a lackluster nature yeah, to them yeah there's really no there's no kick to it right you know there's like no like pow it just it just wallops you in the gut and i think the live album as we talk about bands and showcasing their energy and be able to capture that energy there's nothing more than Kiss Alive, in my opinion. You know, I've actually got, as I, as I was trying to, like, 
process all the albums that I was considering for possible inclusion here. I have Kiss Alive on my list. I have at least six albums that I don't have in my numerical list here that I think are absolutely essential albums to own that define the artist. And that certainly is one of them. I won't mention the others yet because I want to wait to see what else is on your list. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Kiss Alive. I mean, when you think about, it was recorded in Detroit, and you know, Kiss obviously has Detroit Rock City as the opener of their next album after that live album, and it really it saved Casablanca Records as well. Casablanca yeah. Records was on the verge of bankruptcy, didn't know if they were going to have a future. They put out this live album, which really didn't cost much to produce, and they were able to hang on at least, you know, in, until, you know, the early 80s, I want to say, or maybe late 70s. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, it really catapulted them into, you know, a serious record company, which I don't, I don't know any other band besides Kiss that was on Casablanca, you know? I don't know. Do you? I, I don't know of any others either. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that really is it. <laughs> so what's your... Go back, now I'm going to go back and look. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember anybody else being on Casablanca Records. It's just crazy, but... Right. So what's your number three? Okay, so for, for number three, it's actually an album that was released in 1999, um, but the music was uh, 30 years old by that point. Um, and it's Jimi Hendrix's Live at the Fillmore East. Uh, the Fillmore East actually features prominently in a lot of significant live albums, I think, in, in, in rock and roll's annals. And uh, this album is, is really an expansion of the Band of Gypsies recording. It was from two shows that were on New Year's Eve 1969 and New Year's Day of 1970 at the Fillmore East in New York City. Um, and the the groove, the Jimi Hendrix and... Um, Buddy Miles and um, Billy, I say that right, Billy, Billy Miles, Buddy Cox, um, get into on some of the songs is just phenomenal. And his playing is is um, almost ethereal. The, the the tracks on the on this release that really speak to me are uh, "Hear My Train a Coming," which when he introduces the song, it sounds like they didn't even have a full title for the song yet. He says we can call it. Um, uh, uh, Lonesome Blues or something like that. Lonesome, Lonesome Train is what he called it on the album. And then it has Machine Gun on it, which is a, a definitive Jimi Hendrix song that doesn't appear on studio recordings. And I know that there are other songs that were recorded during these same concerts that have been also released on at least four other compilations. But to me, just listening to this particular release from end to end, um, it really makes you feel like it makes you connect with the artist that has been gone now for a long time. Yeah. I mean that Jimmy, you know, was not around, you know, as long as we would have hoped and we would have liked, you know, he only released what three studio albums yeah, and, yeah. you know, there's been a lot of recordings of his playing and unreleased songs ever since then. But, yeah, Live at the Fillmore is regarded as one of the best live albums and really kind of captures the essence of Jimi Hendrix. Right. What's your number three? Mine goes back to the Fillmore as well. Um, Humble Pie, Rockin' the Fillmore. It is a right. absolutely <laughs> breathtaking album. It really is, you know, for a band that really doesn't get their due for whatever reason, it uh, you know, Steve Marriott is just an incredible singer. 
and really underrated when people talk about, you know, greatest lead singers or greatest front man. But the whole band is just so on in this album or on this album yeah. and on, on this Absolutely. recording. It's just a phenomenal, phenomenal record. And, you know, there's the regular version that I think is two discs. Maybe it was two albums. I don't know if it's one disc, but it was two albums. And then they've got the complete recordings, which I think is like six nights at the yeah. Fillmore. And, you know, a lot of the songs are repeated, but one of the great things about bands like Humble Pie and you think of Zeppelin and you think of a lot of those bands from the 70s is how every night it was a different show. Every time they performed a song, it was different. So right. even though they may be the same set list or may have, you know, the same songs on, you know, different nights, it's completely different versions and it's completely different. And, you know, it's not like the cookie cutter shows that we see a lot, especially with the bigger bands that play the same set list through the whole tour, through the whole show, you know, every right. show, they say the same things between each song. I think I experienced that first when I saw the Eagles at Alpine Valley in Wisconsin. Gosh, this had to be mid nineties. I want to say when they did their reunion tour Yeah, and uh, I saw them in Alpine Valley and then I took my girlfriend like several months later to the United Center when they played there. And, and I'm like, oh, this is kind of the same show. You know, it was kind of like the same right. set list. And then I bought a bootleg of theirs live at Giant Stadium, and it was the same show. And I was kind of like, yeah. oh, man, that totally <laughs> sucks. Like, I, you know, I mean, yeah. so a lot of bands do that now, um, unfortunately. There are still bands that do change it up. I know Metallica does a really great job of it, but. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it, it's you know, now that there's YouTube and there's that setlist.com, I mean, you can really kind of see the bands that once they have a set list, they kind of stick to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I, I love it when bands do something unexpected. They take chances with concerts. They mix it up. They throw in like a cover song that you wouldn't anticipate from them or they merge songs together. And I, I, I agree with you. I was, I was fortunate enough to see, I've seen Peter Frampton twice. Um, I did see him last year on his uh, farewell tour, and I and I have to say, I, it makes me very sad that his health won't let him um, do that anymore. But because he was like on his game, his voice and his playing are phenomenal, and you can you can feel that. The, the thing that I love about concerts is when you see that the musicians, the members of the band, are having a conversation with one another through their instrument, and, and it comes alive to the to the audience. And he certainly has that. And I saw him doing a, a few years back. I saw him do an acoustic show too, where I just thought, "Man, this guy is a master of his instrument." Yeah, he's definitely. I mean, speaking of humble pie, you know, I mean, you, you know, Peter Frampton, you know, the original guitar player for yeah. for the band. So, you know, maybe that's just kind of you know where he comes from. You know, he's one of the yeah. you know in one of the greatest bands of all time, one of the most underrated bands of all time. And now you mentioned, you know you've seen him a couple times and he has that energy where everything, you know, it's yeah. kind of, there's a lot of improvisation in his shows and he feeds off the energy. And I think that comes from that era of music. Right. Know? Right. Um, and then, and Steve Marriott, you've already mentioned his, his voice is just phenomenal. I mean, he has one, I think he had one of the best rock blues voices ever. Absolutely. I mean, the guy was just, you know, people talk about Robert Plant and people talk about Freddie Mercury. He, Steve Marriott's right up there with both of them. He really is. Absolutely. 
you yeah. know, um, yeah. just a fa- fantastic singer, fantastic performer. Um, just has that, you know, that that grit that Freddie doesn't have. You know, Freddie's very clean, doesn't have a lot of grit in his, you know, tone and his yeah. in his uh, range. You know, Plant does have that grit, but but you know, there's something. You know, Steve Marriott can, you know, sounds just like you know, his voice is just that middle class, hardworking voice. You know, right, right. He's got real power behind it. <laughs> yeah, and just yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, so yeah. what's uh, moving on to number two? What do you got? Okay, number two is a band that I was completely obsessed with when I was. Um, from like junior high through high school and I've always been a fan of the band. Um, it's 1982's uh, Blue Oyster Cult's Extraterrestrial Live. It's probably the first live album that I bought where I was like, where it really sucked me in and solidified my interest in, in live music. Um, it was actually recorded on two different tours. The tail end of their tour of Mirrors, which there was part of their black and blue tour with uh, Black Sabbath, which I, I didn't know somebody that saw that tour. I'm incredibly envious of that. Um, and then they were on tour for the uh, Fire of Unknown Origin album, which was probably the real uh, apex of, of the band at that point. And um, the the playing on two songs in particular really uh, just gets to me. One is Veteran of the Psychic Force. Buck Dharma is one of my favorite live guitar players. I've seen him a couple of times. Um, and And his, the way he spins himself um, and really makes the song something different from what it was on the studio recording on Fire of Unknown Origin. Um, and then the the live version of Joan Crawford is incredible as well, where they also do a few things on it that wasn't there on the original recording. Um, I actually have I have all three of the live Blue Oyster Cult albums and I had a little bit of difficulty because I have to say that when I have seen them perform live, um, whenever they do the song, then came the last days of May. Uh, his playing, it just like it, it speaks to me. I, it, it's like my favorite playing is watching him play during that song, and and that song is on the uh, on your feet or on your knees um, album, which was their first live album. And the solo on it is good, but it is I have not yet heard it um, captured the way I have seen it performed. But so for me, this particular recording um, is probably the best example of his playing that, that um, really just captures me. You know, me being, I wouldn't say I don't like Blue Hours Blaster Call, but I've never really connected with them and I've never really listened to them. You know, it's been, again, yeah. it's very similar to UFO with me where, you know, I never was able to revisit them like I did with UFO. I certainly did, but I never really connected with Blue Earth Cult or, or, or was really drawn to them. What would you suggest for me and anyone else who's kind of in the same boat where to start with Blue Oyster Cult? Well, I think that, that first of all, you have to um, keep in mind that their their music is pretty dynamic as far as like uh, different styles uh, and, and songwriting. But they really were a band where every member of the band contributed. Um, they had members of the band that would play different instruments uh, like Alan Lanier played keyboards and guitar um, you had different vocalists they, they mix it up a lot and so you get a lot of variety in their music and maybe sometimes that makes it difficult for some people to really connect with them because they're not sure exactly what what is Blue Oyster Cult but I, I would suggest that the albums that stick out in my mind are Secret Treaties 
um, which has the first version of Astronomy on it, because they re-recorded that song uh, later on when they did the Imaginos album. Um, I think Fire of Unknown Origin is a really good studio album. Um, it has it has Burning for You, which is obviously one of their major hits. Um, the uh, Agents of Fortune album, it, will, it has a song that everyone knows on it, but it also has great stuff like Tattoo Vampire. It's an absolutely killer song. Uh, and... Um, let me see. There was, if you want to go some of the heavier stuff, there is a heavy, heavy song off the um, um, their their album. In, oh, I'm drawing a blank all of a sudden. It's the one they released in 1982. Song is "Take Me Away." Oh, the Revolution by Night, um, which also it has a real mix on it. It has a super heavy song on it, and then it has kind of one dreamy keyboardy song. It's got a lot of MTV play with Shooting Shark on it. So I'd probably say start with Secret Treaties and Agents of Fortune, and then uh, probably Fire of Unknown Origin. I will definitely start there. Thank you. So, uh, you know. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've always wanted to know, like, as a, as a person who I don't consider myself a, a fan of Blue Oyster Cult, not that I don't like them, I've just never really listened to them. So sure, I've always sure. been curious to, you know, have someone recommend, you know, where to begin, you know. I mean, I remember when I got in a rush – in a very early age, I had a friend that told me to, you know, start with the lyrics. Don't listen to his voice. Yeah. Read the lyrics, and you'll connect with the lyrics. And that was huge for me, you know, because actually, yeah, Blue Oyster Cult actually has something similar. There are some very inventive lyrics, and there's some very sinister lyrics as well. Um, if you listen to the song "Doctor Music" off of uh, the album "Mirrors" and pay attention to the lyrics, you're like, "Whoa! I can't believe he's saying that." <laughs> Definitely, it's called, a song called what? Mirrors, you said. The the song is called Doctor Music. Okay. Uh, there's a version of it on Extraterrestrial Live. I actually don't think it's quite as good as the studio version that's on the album Mirrors. Uh, but um, the song is sung by uh, I think it's Eric Bloom singing that song, and um, he, he really sounds like whoa. I, I'm I'm a little scared of that guy. <laughs> nice, nice. What do you have at number two? Number two is the in my opinion the best live album released in the 80s it was again high energy just great crowd great musicians great band and that's iron maidens live after death uh yeah just great a, album yeah just a phenomenal i mean it was like right after peace of mind oh no it was right after aces high before somewhere in time and it was just an explosion because there wasn't a lot of live albums released in the 80s that were big. You know, Live After Death, you know, there's Priest Live, you know, Rush had a couple live albums as well. I think Dokken, I don't know if it was in the 90s or late 80s, but they had, you know, Beasts from the East. But uh, Live After Death really captures that moment for Maiden, probably at their peak, right. which is Power Slave. And not that, the, you know, I mean, Somewhere in Time was a great album, as was Seventh Son of the Seventh Son. And I, firmly believe their new stuff is just as good but to capture that moment in the mid 80s i think it was 85 or 86 um for any young kid who was just mesmerized by the album covers and the sure. music and the mystery surrounding iron maiden and all you know but it was different back then you didn't have the internet so there was always like this little bit of like you know oh my god look at this album cover and you know, listen to these songs. Right. And what are they about? And people accuse them of worshiping the devil. And it was just, it just added to the lore of Maiden growing up then. 
and live after death live after death just captures what they wanted to give to their fans and i think it's a perfect live album i i, I agree with you that is a fantastic live album um it actually speaks to me in a very personal way because um Iron Maiden came through Denver in December of 84 on the World Slavery Tour, and that was the second real concert that I went to. The first one I went to was probably about a month and a half before that, which was um, Helix White's making Quiet Riot. But I went to see Iron Maiden on that tour, and Twisted Sister was supposed to be the opening act, and Dee Snider unfortunately like injured himself earlier, I think it was earlier in that day, and couldn't perform. And so Iron Maiden came out and played like an extra long set. In, in my memory, now obviously we're talking about more than 30 years ago, but in my memory, um, they must have played close to three hours. And I was completely blown away. It really like um, hooked me into concerts. And from that point forward, I was like, I got to see as much live music as possible. That's awesome. That's a great story. Yeah. A lot of bands, you know, used to do that back then, right? I mean, they yeah. would have you know, certain situations pop up and play for hours on end. I mean, I know Rush used to play for a long time. And, you know, now, you know, bands do maybe 12 to 15 songs in a set list where yeah. when we were growing up and we go see live music, bands would play like 20 to 25. I mean, they would play a lot of songs. You know, they would just play for, yeah. for at least two hours. Very few yeah. bands, you know, did, did not, uh, you know, did not clock out you know, after, you know, before two hours, it was, that was like, that was like the main, like you had to play at least two hours. Yeah. I, I suspect that there's probably, um, local ordinances that play into a lot of it that cause bands to have to shut down sooner than they probably would like to. And that probably didn't impact them as much, um, in earlier years. And so there's probably some artificial restrictions that are preventing us from hearing as much live music as we'd like. That's a good point. <laughs> I didn't think about that, but yeah, that could be very well true. I mean, yeah, I, I never thought about it. But, you know, when I go see bands in Chicago, I don't think Chicago has any restrictions on time. You know, yeah. bands will play for an hour and a half, they'll do 12, 15 songs, and that'll be it, you know, and they've got a whole catalog. So I don't know why bands, you know, choose to do that. I, I, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I think it's probably more prevalent with the outdoor venues, um, especially if they're ones that are set in more urban areas. Um but uh, I, I don't know. I, I have seen, I, I've watched a couple times when I had the right angle at a stage, I see bands have a clock on them. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon with, with opening acts. Obviously, they need to get off the stage at a certain point. But you, I, I've watched the countdown and thought, oh, man, I've only got like 10 more minutes. And this really sucks because this band is kicking butt. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. I know one of the, uh, one of the best venues to see a concert when I was growing up was Alpine Valley in East Troy, Wisconsin. And that's the infamous yeah. venue that Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, his helicopter right. crashed in the side of a ski, um, uh, ski hill and, right. uh, cause of the fog. But that was a great place to see a concert back in the day. I saw pretty much every band at that venue. You were able to cook out before the show and tailgate and yeah, just, they don't do a lot of shows there anymore, unfortunately. Right. I can tell you my favorite venue is uh, Red Rocks um, because that it was obviously very personal to me. My high school is not very far away from the venue. We actually had our high school graduation at Red Rocks. I've seen a number of uh, extremely memorable shows there, and it's like it brings to me when I think of Red Rocks that is the live experience. 
Um, I, I recall seeing Metallica there in 1991, and this, it may be more dramatic now in my memory, but this is how I recall it. They they came out to do their um, their encore, and they played one for the encore. And right as they finished the song, there was a bolt of lightning that struck directly in line behind the stage, and then the eye, the sky just opened up and dumped on us. And it was like the whole thing was choreographed, and it was it was so cool. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so okay, so before for number we, one, hold on, hold on. Yeah, B- before we get to <laughs> number one, are there any other live albums you want to mention that are your favorites? Oh yeah, I've actually got like a big one. So there's like six that I have here. That I think that everyone must own. That aren't on my list. You've already mentioned Kiss Alive, <clears throat> but the other ones that I think that um, if you don't own this album, you're doing yourself a disservice. Uh, the Allman Brothers Live at Fillmore East. Um, I, I think that they, if you don't have that, you haven't really heard the Allman Brothers. The Who Live at Leeds, which has an incredible amount of energy behind it. Uh, Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band's Live Bullet. Um, it's one of those albums where the definitive version of the song is a live version, that being Turn the Page. Uh, Cheap Tricks at Budokan, same thing. If you hear the studio version of uh, I Want You to Want Me, it just pales in comparison to the live version that's on the album. And, and then um, I, I hate that I don't have it in my top five, but Frampton comes alive because that album is just like full of, of energy and connection with the audience. I have a huge long list of, of other stuff, but we could spend another hour and a half, two hours going through all of them. There's some albums out there that I made note of that are uh, notable because they are acoustic live albums. Um, and that's uh, Foo Fighters Skin and Bones is very good, I think. Uh, I know you're not a huge fan of Nirvana, but I do think that Unplugged, the album they did, is, is, is incredibly good. Um, I, you just feel the emotion coming out of his voice, and I think their covers of the Meat Puppet song from that album are better than the originals. Uh, Pearl Jam's Live at Ben Royal Hall, uh, Neil Young Live at Massey Hall in 1971 are all great acoustic albums. Um, there's a couple of albums I made note of because they were the debut album for the band and their live albums. One of them was Jane's Addiction. And the second was the Magpie Salute, which was Rich Robinson's um, non-Black Crows vehicle, where they released a, a live album, mostly of covers, uh, where it has great sound, but it, it's always curious to me that when a band starts out with a live album, um, what, what, what kind of things would you like to mention before getting to the end? Yeah, you know, a couple of those albums I do connect with totally especially the Bob Seger album which I had when I was a kid that uh, was just a phenomenal record and um, you know Seger does get forgotten a lot when yeah. uh, you know people talk about great songwriters talk about a guy who can tell a story in a song you know whether it's Night Moves or Against the Wind Turn the Page obviously um, right. just a great songwriter the albums that I left off my list on my top five but like you said, you know, are essential albums that any rock band needs to own or has to own is I'll start with Dokken, Beast from the East, really yeah. captures the vibe of the 80s as well. You know, George Lynch's playing on that album is absolutely phenomenal. The band sounds really good. Another band that really didn't, you know, break through into, in terms of superstardom. I mean, they were a good band. They were a popular band, but... They never reached the heights like a Bon Jovi or a Def Leppard. I think their song Alone Again came out too early in terms of the power ballad wave. And I thought that people didn't really know what to think of them. You know, they could play, they could open up for a band like Priest, 
you know, because they did have a little bit right. of a heavier sound. And then they can also play for Bon Jovi. They could play for, you know, some of the other more poppier bands in, in that genre, in that era. So I right. thought it was just kind of hard to kind of place them and kind of try to figure them out. And I do think that if Alone Again would have came out after Home Sweet Home, I think it would have been a different ball game for for Dokken. Um, yeah, I think you're probably right. Another great live album is Butch Walker, Leaving the Game on Lucky Street. You can mm-hmm. get it on CD. I think you can get it on DVD format, but um, it's just a great. You, can, you can't get the physical copy, but I think you can order it on iTunes. It's just a great live album. Another singer-songwriter that's got a great energy about him. There's two different types of people in the world, those who know and love Butch Walker and those that haven't heard Butch Walker yet. <laughs> he, 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 seeing him live, there's such a joy with his performance. He's yeah. a great performer. He, you know, he was in the band Marvelous 3, which is another underrated band that doesn't get their due. And then before that, you know, part of the 80s scene with the, with the glam rock was South Gang. But he's now a big-time producer in the music. He does everybody from Harry Connick to Pink to Train to who you name it. He's, he's, done, he's probably done their albums. I think he just did the latest Green Day record. But phenomenal performer. Obviously, being a Rush fan, um, love Exit Stage Left, love All the World is a Stage. Just some uh, you know great performances by Rush in uh, and, and that was a hard band to capture on a live album too as well because you really don't get the full effect of seeing Rush. But right. uh, it's just those are great albums. Um, another great album is by Y&T, another band that's underrated. The album is Open Fire, which really captures them in terms of you know how they played live. Band that really kind of got messed around with by their record company A and M Records. Right. Didn't really, you know, really do what they said. And then they signed with Geffen. And if you saw the Y&T documentary, Dave Menachetti does not mince words when he talks about both situations. Um, Judas Priest, Unleashed in the East. Another great album. Great yeah. album that really captures Priest. And I think really did a lot for, you know, their popularity. Because that was a big album, too, when I was growing up. So, you know, those albums right there probably, you know, for me are... A lot of my favorites. Um, I know there's probably some that I'll probably say, oh, why didn't I include that in the show? Yeah. <laughs> um, but those are probably, you know, for whatever reason, they connected with me in my youth. And, you know, maybe, you know, Beast from the East, I know is probably not regarded by many as a great live album or whatever. But to me, it was, you know, I was probably 14 years old when that came out. And it was just, I love George Lynch. I still do. And just hearing him play live, um, you know, was just something special for me. So that's my yeah, additional actually, list. I always, I always thought George Lynch was a great player. I did see Dawkins back in the late '80s. Uh, I was always really impressed with his, his chops, uh, but I never really realized how uh, accomplished or productive he was until I heard you talking about him. And when you had your conversation with him, uh, was that early this year, or late last year? I think it was late last year. Um, and I got that Dirty Shirley album after you spoke to him, and, and man, that is a good album. His his playing is so good on that album, and and, and I'm I'm feel fortunate that I was able to see Dawkins uh, back when they were at the top of their games. Have you checked out the stuff with Doug Pinnock? 
I, yeah, I've got the uh, the the KXM albums. Yeah, yeah, um, those are really good too. It, it's like he has so many varied projects going on. It's like I can't keep up. <laughs> yeah, he's a guy that just you know has that you know creativity and he's tapped into it, and he's just going to keep recording stuff until he runs out. And I think a lot of it just has to do with the fact that he. He's a guy that I admire because he's constantly stretching himself. He's trying to, yeah. you know, play yeah. outside the norms of what people think of his playing. And uh, he just does it, you know, whether it's Dirty Shirley or KXM or Sweet and Lynch or, you know, the project with Corey Glover from Living Color. And there's so much yeah. other stuff, too, as well that he's done. Yeah, he's just an accomplished player. He's a great, uh, you know, and you think of the three guitar players from – you know, the L.A. scene in the late 70s, you know, Randy Rhodes, Eddie Van Halen, and George, and George is the last one standing. And, yeah. and um, yeah. you know, all three of those guys kind of grew up in that circuit. And, you know, speaking of which, another great live album that I just popped into my head that I didn't mention was Tribute by Ozzy Osbourne, you know, featuring Randy I Rhodes. About that. Yeah. yeah, I thought about that. Um, it's it's kind of like a... I mean, it is a live, it's a lot of live performances and it has like the outtake section. And so I don't really like include it in my thinking of the other stuff, but, but yeah, it captures some of the stuff that uh, was his true genius. And, you know, speaking of live albums, kind of maybe given a different angle on what we're talking about, but if there's one band that never released a proper live album during their prime, and it's really disappointing that they never did, and that's Van Halen, you know. Yeah, I suspected you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, I hope, you know, I know Wolfie was on Howard Stern, and he mentioned that, you know, he's going to go out and tour with his new album when that comes out next year, as he should, you know. But uh, I hope when he does go through the quote-unquote vaults and the recordings at 5150 Studios, there is yeah. something that he can put out that really gives people the 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 essence and the you know the this the just the superstar feeling and energy that Van Halen was right. in the late seventies to mid eighties. You know, I mean right. and, and we've had the Sammy Hagar live album, but I hopefully they have something from like the Fair Warning or Woman and Children First or whatever that really kinda you know gives the fans what they've been craving for a long, long time. Right, I agree with you. So number one, let's okay. Get, well, let's get to it. Well, your number one, my number one, you already mentioned. Um, I have Humble Pie's performance, "Rockin' the Fillmore," is my number one. Um, it's a 1971 album, and I, I agree with you about all the the great things about that album. I think that the what what got me the when I first heard that album, I thought, "Oh my god, this album sounds great." The the tone of the guitars, it's like. When I, when I hear people talk about tone and guitar, that's the album that I think of. I always, I always think that I want my tone to sound something remotely in the neighborhood of that because it comes through and it's got such power behind it and it really pulls you in. I actually have a difficulty um, because there are two live Humble Pie albums that uh, I think have their, each have their own merits. Um, I chose this one because of the sound. The, the whole album just sounds great. Um, but both albums have uh, a live song on it that is different and, and, and really speaks to me, and that's I Walk on Gilded Splinters. Um, the other album 
uh, from Humble Pie that I, I love is the uh, Live at the Whiskey at Go-Go. And it has a version of the sad bag of Shaky Jake merging into I Walk on Gilded Splinters. And I can just sit there and put that on and get completely lost in the song because the, the performance is, is so compelling. Um, the only reason I, I, I give the Rock and the Fillmore the slight edge is that obviously the recording quality is a little better. There is, when they have, when they have this sad uh, bag of shaky Jake on the Whiskey A Go-Go album, there is a key vocal part that almost gets lost. You can't hear Greg Ridley's vocal, but, and it's a part of the song that really is necessary to pull the song along. So I think that gives the performance rock and the film more of the edge. I think it's a great, great live album. It is my favorite live album. Yeah, I you know, just to, you know, basically copy what you said. I agree with everything. Um, yeah. You know, it's just a fantastic album. And, you know, again, you know, Humble Pie was one of those bands that as I was getting into Zeppelin, I kind of got into Humble Pie at the same time, not at the level of Zeppelin. But, um, you know, again, Steve Marriott, one of the greatest performers of all time, one of the greatest yeah. singers of all time, could basically do it all. And, you know, it's a shame that more people don't talk about him when they talk about the greats in terms of voices. And and uh, you always know when someone mentions Steve Marriott as one of the best singers, you're like, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about, you know, because, <laughs> you know, because people don't mention him. They, you know, they mention other singers yeah. and not to take away from, you know, take away anything from anybody. Steve is, you know, is in that upper echelon of greats of all time. Agreed. So What's your number one? My number one is... Alive 2, the second Kiss album in my top five. And this album was the first live album that I ever heard. I was probably eight or nine years old, maybe 10. And I was over at a neighbor's house. They had Kiss Alive on vinyl. And he was older than me, so he was out, you know, in the backyard playing with my brother, probably playing catch or whatever, shooting hoops. And I stayed in, and I brought cassettes with me to record the album because I knew he had it. And yeah. it was one of those just things that, you know, when you hear Shock Me or you hear Tomorrow and Tonight, when you hear the intro at Detroit Rock City and King of the Nighttime World, it just took me to another place. It really made me a Kiss fan. It was, again, the first live album that I ever heard. And, you know, just knowing what they look like, and now hearing what they sounded like, I did not, I did not hear a live previous to this. This was the first time I think I actually had heard Kiss. Um, and so it was before I bought Look It Up because Look It Up was my first album. So yeah. this was like the first, you know, I, I took a couple of blank cassettes down there and I recorded it and I just listened to it over and over again. Plus it has the five studio albums. I wish they would have had more of a live recording because I think there were some songs they left out. And, you know, there's a couple of good Rocket Ride and um, Larger Than Life are some really good songs. But, you know, the, the studio versions I could have done without, you know, the studio songs. But, yeah, just a great album. Really connect with me. Um, and I always regard that as my favorite Kiss Live album. Well, I think that when you're describing that, I think you hit the nail on the head on what, what identifies a great live album. And that is it takes you to another place you can actually feel yourself being transported back in time to uh, like a, a moment of zeitgeist that really just captures everything about that experience. Um, and that's what I look for in live albums. And I, I hope that we see more live albums. I think there's some bands out there that 
certainly um, play in a manner that would translate well and, and certainly now have a catalog enough that they could fill a live album easily. I think the, a live album from Rival Sons would be perfect. <laughs> um, I think Tyler Bryant, The Shakedown, should do a live album. Um, when I saw the, the Rockin' Tours, and I know you saw them too on the same tour, um, which has now been more than a year, it was the best show I had seen in probably five years. I agree. Uh, just, it was like I, I was I sat there thinking as I'm watching I'm like this is what it feels like to be present at one of these uh, performances that everyone speaks of for years because I was like and I can't believe that I'm fortunate enough to be here and see it um, they are unbelievably good if you if, if anyone has a chance to go see them again at some point you must see them <laughs> absolutely you know you, you hit the nail on the head where you, you were present, and that's largely because they have everyone put their cell phones in a locked pouch, right? So you can't, <laughs> so you can't access your cell phone. And everyone's like, "Oh my god, that's horrible!" I'm like, "No, that's because you're present. You're actually there. You're not watching through a screen. You're not being distracted." And I took my son to the rave in Milwaukee to see them, and it was it was so hot that day. It was just incredibly yeah. hot. And the rave is one of those old theaters where it doesn't have great ventilation. I don't even think it has AC. So everyone's just dripping with sweat. I mean, everybody's just asses to elbows, you know, in, in the, in the crowd and they come out and, you know, you, you take the fact that you're present, you don't have anything distracting you. You're agitated because of the heat, right? You've got all this like pent up aggression because you're frustrated and you're annoyed. (laughs) And, they come out. Jack White is just ready to kick some ass, and it's like a plane taking off. And they 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 lift off, and they didn't let you go. They did not land until the last note was played. And right, yeah, like those first six songs, I remember distinctly that it was just like wow, like like that's incredible. And we got out of the you know theater at the end of the show. My son's like, I'm like, what'd you think? And he goes, that was awesome. That was just really great. That's the best concert I ever was at. And I go, yeah. that, that's how it's done. That's how it's done. That's how you come out, you grab the crowd by the throat, and you don't let them go. And, you know, it was old school with that. I mean, I haven't seen a show. I mean, Grant, you know, I go to a lot of shows, as do you. But there was yeah. just something special about seeing the Rankin Tours. It was just great. They were spellbinding. That is yeah. absolutely true. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I agree with you. Rival Sons puts on a great show. Tyler Bryant puts on a great show. Love to see live albums from them too. But go ahead, finish your thought. Oh, I, I, the only other band that I have on the list that I, I don't know if, if they would have to, have to add personnel to do it properly, but I think it'd be great to hear a live album of the Cold Stairs. Yeah, totally. I know that's a big. I know it's a big favorite of, of Chris's, um, and it's amazing how much sound the two people can can put out. But uh, I think that they're they're. Their blues-based um, grit really tr- would translate well to a live album. I agree. I think one of the things that's different about the Cold Stairs being a two-piece, and Chris mentioned this when he was on the show the first time, is how he really focuses on the low end and makes it sound really okay. full. You know, like right. you know, like you can't believe it's just a guitar and drums. You know, because he's really experimented and really messed around with getting the right tone. And he really kind of captures that where it doesn't sound. It's you know, it's like seeing winery dogs. You know, when you see winery right. dogs and there's three people up there, 
and you're listening, there's that moment in the show where you're like, dude, there's only three people up there. How are they making yeah. it sound like that? You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it, it really does. It's mesmerizing to watch a small group of people sound like an army. <laughs> yeah, Rush was the same way. I mean, Rush just yeah. like, I mean, you know, those guys are the, you know, the the top of the line when it comes to musicianship, and they just every time they played, it would sound like, where are the other people on the stage? How can three people be making right. that that amount of music? You know, so, I remember having the same type of thought when I saw. Uh, Zebra opened for Sammy Hagar in 1985 wow. just before he joined Van Halen and they were putting out so much sound I'm like there's only three guys down there how could that be <laughs> Zebra is a Canadian band right they are oh no I'm sorry I'm sorry they're not they're from New Orleans okay um, um, yeah but they, they are a power trio that, that's kind of their music does kind of have that same feel as like Triumph or, or obviously some comparisons to Rush but I think that they were originally from New Orleans and but uh, they were a very very good live band you know when we talk about this and we know that live shows have post been postponed and paused as we go through this pandemic it really is you know something that I hope does come back and I hope it comes back in the form that we all know and love I don't know if I would want to be at a show that has 25% capacity. You know, I don't know if, yeah. you know, because the energy is just as important when you see a live band and hear live music. And I, I don't know. I, I don't know where, where my head is on that yet. I haven't experienced it yet, and I hope I don't have to. I hope we can just open the doors and go back to normal when things, you know, do, quote, unquote, go back to normal. But it's still unknown at this point. But... Man, I just, you know, we talk about these great live albums, and as we're talking about it, I'm reminiscing about a lot of shows. I mean, you mentioned the Rank of Tours, and I just remember that special feeling seeing that band. You know, there's there's always that moment. Like, you know, like there's always good bands that play live music, right? But then yeah. there's like that band that just is able to capture that moment in time and make you feel like there's no other, there's nothing else happening on planet Earth at that moment. And right. you know, there's there's a there's there's good live bands, there's great live bands, and there's special live bands. And you know, when you experience that, when it goes right through your body and into your soul while you're watching it, that's a great feeling. Yeah. I don't think there's anything like that in life. I I hope we haven't lost the roar of the crowd. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, I mean, when you're singing the lyrics in unison with hundreds of people, thousands of people, wherever, wherever you're at, there's, I mean, it, it doesn't beat it. Nothing beats that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I remember, um, when I was younger, I would, when I could, I would listen to the King Biscuit flower hour on Sunday nights. And I remember thinking, man, I wish I was there. Well, that's, that's how I feel now. Every time I'm listening to the light, I wish I was there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gosh, I remember hearing kiss live on the King Biscuit flower hour. I remember hearing Motley Crue, on the Shout the Devil tour. I remember yeah. hearing the broadcast. I don't know if it was King Biscuit Flower Hour, but I remember hearing, you know, um, I think it was the Defenders of the Faith tour with Judas Priest. Yeah. And I remember remember when when live shows would be simulcast. Remember when the Who, yeah. I think it was 82, was their first farewell show? And yeah. it was, it was, I think it was in New York. I think it was Madison Square Garden. And you could hear it. They had it on television. I don't know if it was cable or some other format. 
and then you could sync it up to your stereo. And it was, yeah. I mean, it was, they used to do that all the time. They don't do that anymore. Ra- radio itself is just, you know, kind right. of an afterthought now. But, yeah, right. that, was, that was awesome. Like when you were a kid on a Saturday night or, or you know, Sunday night or whenever it was, and you'd be able to hear a simulcast of a live show in another place or from another place, that was a special thing, man. That was great. Yeah. Yeah, well, you succeeded in making me all misguided and nostalgic now. Yeah, I know, man. I know. I can't believe it's been over a year since I've seen a live show. It really does suck. Yeah. But, you yeah. know, hopefully soon. Hopefully soon, you know. In the meantime, buy live albums. Yeah, buy live albums and also, you know, do what you can to support the bands that are out there live streaming. Um, right. Some bands do a better job than others. and uh, But I hope everyone's trying to figure it out and be able to – help get some joy out of listening to bands perform. But I guess that's where we're at right now. And that's kind of where we're going to be for at least a short term future for the, at least the next four or five months, six months at least, you know? Right. But well, Hey man, I appreciate the time. I appreciate the idea. I appreciate the conversation. It's been great. It's been great having you back on. It's been a while, but awesome idea. Glad we did this. Thanks very much for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. Uh, great to talk to you. And uh, I got to tell you, you uh, you occupy my my commute to and from work, so I can learn all about new music. So please keep it up. <laughs> I appreciate, it, man. There's more coming. There's a lot of great things coming in 2021. Got a little sidetracked because of the health issue, but things are you sure. know are uh, looking to you know get the train back on the on the track and, and get going again with the planning and everything. But thank you very much for the compliment. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for. Coming back on the show, um, you can find Rob. He goes under the name Rob in the Hood on Twitter, and he's under the recidivist. You pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's at the recidivist, which okay. was a band that I was in at one point. I just stuck with that handle. <laughs> All right, yeah. So you can find him. Just just type in Rob in the Hood, and uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find him that way. But um, he's a great follow. He's always posting you know, the stuff he gets in the mail his mail call, but, um, <laughs> yeah, he, he loves new music and, uh, hopefully who's ever listening, you're starting to like it too, because it's coming. New rock and roll is here and it's here to stay and it's going to be a huge, huge wave of it. So get used to it. Great. Thanks again, Jay. Thanks Rob. Once again, everybody, it's Rob in the hood. I'm Jay Scott. This is the hook rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Thanks again for listening. Merry Christmas, Merry belated Christmas. And uh, Happy New Year to you. Take care of yourselves, stay healthy, and we will talk again soon. Thank you. I'm a soldier. I'm in the trenches, fighting every day to succeed. I can feel the blood rushing through my veins. I'm surrounded by enemies. I'm sick and tired of you telling me.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 